You are listening to episode 73 of the Remind Yourself podcast. Welcome to the Remind Yourself podcast, the podcast for physician moms just like you who want to ditch mom guilt, stop yelling, and start enjoying their lives today. I'm your host, Michelle Chestovich, certified life coach, family physician, and mom of four. If you want to overcome overwhelm for once and for all, this is the place for you. Hello, Mama Docs. Welcome back. You have heard me speak time and again about the importance of sleep, and I am so excited today to have a guest who is a specialist at sleep. We are going to have a conversation about all sorts of things that I know that you will find fascinating. And let's just get started. I am so pleased. And I wanted to say welcome, Dr. Audrey Wells. Please introduce yourself. Thanks, Michelle. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm a sleep medicine doc. And I have been in practice for about 14 years. Recently, I've kind of taken on a new project, which I hope is promoting the message of sleep and its importance in that I'm doing some education and things outside of the clinic, but uh, I'm really happy here today to talk to you and get in touch with your listeners. Thank you so much. The first question I have is, did you start out knowing that you wanted to study sleep or how did you come to that? Because it's such an important area. And I don't, I know just in general, my general medicine training, like, and family medicine, I didn't feel like I learned a lot about it. So tell us just briefly about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like a lot of people going through med school, sleep was not really one of our, our subjects. And I didn't know it was a, a subspecialty until I was doing my pulmonary fellowship. But when I saw it, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, that is what I need to do. And it was, it was nothing short of a re- revelation for me because in my life and for me, sleep is critically important. And so I felt very connected to helping people sleep better because in my life, it's just been something that is an absolute necessity. Oh my goodness. I agree. I, I always say, like, I don't know how I made it through my medical training because I knew early on that I was somebody who needed a lot of sleep, but somehow I worked it out. Like, I guess I just didn't really do anything other than doctor and sleep when I was in my medical training, which, you know, I guess probably that's what a lot of people do, but I think some people might try to sprinkle in like fun or exercise, but I would come (laughs) home from call shifts and just have a bowl of cereal I joke that I'd like cry in my bowl of cereal and then go to bed and, you know, get 12 hours of sleep to like kind of refresh, but I digress. So yes, sleep is vital. My listeners have heard me talk about it before. I definitely think it was a huge factor, sleep deprivation in my sister's death last year. It wasn't the Mm -hmm. only thing, but I really think that she went into that week before she died, just like super exhausted. So maybe before we talk about some of the other things, just tell me like the science behind that, how it affects our mood or what are the basic things that you see when there is sleep deprivation? Yeah, there's no shortage of data showing that sleep deprivation affects mental and emotional health profoundly. And we're not just talking like, you know, if cutting your sleep time in half, like significant sleep deprivation, but even sleep deprivation that would be maybe considered mild, you know, less than seven hours of sleep per night has significant impacts on your mood, 
on your creativity, on your ability to problem solve, memory, and you know where your emotional health is concerned, sleep deprivation makes the whole world look darker and harder to deal with. And you know the the emotional part of our brain, the amygdala and things really don't have the frontal cortex to provide that break on the the activity of the amygdala when sleep deprivation is going on. So even for people who aren't meeting their regular sleep requirements, the effects can be subtle, but then they can come up and really start impacting one's life. I think it's worth noting that there's no psychiatric illness in which sleep is normal because sleep is that critical for mental health. Wow. The thing that really stuck out to me is it doesn't have to be like massive sleep deprivation, right? Most of us in medical training have experienced that. What I'm hearing you say is that even if you're getting less than seven hours, that can affect you. And how many of us in medicine or as mothers or just humans on this planet that is very driven are experiencing that? Absolutely right. And, and you know, I think that culturally we tend to look at sleep as something that's negotiable. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if, if things are running long in our day, we just kind of push our sleep back a little bit. And I'm guilty of doing the same thing. I'm, I'm sure that you've had this experience too. Of course, the things and, quote unquote need to get done. And yet again, I feel very grateful that my body just literally shuts down. So I'm like, I can't do anything else. I have to go to bed. So yeah. like, I'm grateful that I have such a strong, strong drive to sleep. I think it's been protective for me, but yeah, I hear from so many clients, so many friends like, Oh, I've got to get all this stuff done before I go to sleep. So we really skimp on our sleep because again, as you said, we think it's negotiable. Mm -hmm. And I think too, there's this idea that you have to fit so much in, in a day, but the backfire is that if you're working under sleep deprivation all the time, it is taking you longer to do the same amount of things compared to if you were to have a good night's sleep in you regularly. Right? I mean, again, when I recall when I've had nights where I haven't had as much sleep, like you feel like you're slogging through the mud. Or mm -hmm. when I've been post-call or had deliveries and up all night, all of a sudden you think, oh my goodness, like life is so much easier when you finally get a good night of sleep. And I think sometimes people forget that, particularly folks with young children who are up quite a bit at night. Can yes. you speak to that? So you said we think it's negotiable. Like, what do we do to prioritize sleep? Or, or why should people listening to us think, huh, maybe that's something that I should actually consider? Because of course, going to work, that's sacred, right? Like most of us wouldn't not show up to a shift. I think that um, prioritizing sleep just starts with an awareness of what sleep can do for you. Sleep restores and preserves health and recognizing it as kind of a, as a superpower can really go a long way to advocate for your own sleep. I've got little kids myself. In fact, my two-year-old was up in the middle of the night last night. And so when it was time for me to get up this morning, I kind of waver like, oh, maybe I'll just lay in bed longer. And I think enacting those kinds of coping mechanisms is really common. Some of these maladaptive coping mechanisms, though, kind of worsen the problem. And I'll just speak to this for the example of my toddler. So if I were to say, well, I didn't get as much sleep as I needed last night, 
I'm going to stay in bed longer. That kind of disrupts the brain pattern of sleep expectation. So I'm essentially giving myself a little bit of jet lag today if I do Mm. that. And that can affect me for the next couple of days. So as hard as it was, because I am a human being with a human brain, I get up at my regular time and I may look to have maybe a 20 minute nap if I can later today. But, you know, it's really something that I think people have good intentions to catch up on sleep or to extend their sleep time. But one way to really improve sleep quality is to get into a space where you're prioritizing not just your bedtime routines, but even the activities leaning up to those bedtime, your bedtime so that your sleep quality is as good as it can be. Oh my gosh, we're going to talk about that next. But first, I just want to say to reiterate that you mentioned that we need to just have awareness and prioritize it sleep for our health. Yes, our mental health, but also our physical health. We didn't get into all of those details, but we know that not getting good sleep does affect our physical health. And we as physicians preach to the choir, right? Like make sure you're exercising and eating nutritiously and getting good sleep. And we forget. And I think that for most of my listeners, sleep falls to the bottom. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'll make sure I get some fruits and veggies in the week, try to move my body a little bit. Although that often gets shoved to the side when people get real busy as well. But sleep, I think people, again, people think it's negotiable and Mm -hmm. it's not. So if people walk away with one thing today, well, you can give them the pearl. But my thought is like, just be aware that this is really critical for your physical and your mental health. The other thing that I just want to come back to is that hour before sleep, or I always used to talk to my patients about the hour before sleep is critical, but I will give it to you as the sleep expert to talk about the before bedtime base. Yeah. And this is something that's really important for mental health as well. It's really unrealistic to ask your brain to shut off in a moment's notice. So the hour or two before sleep should be sort of a time when you're helping your brain to wind down. And ideally that would not involve substances uh, such as alcohol, such as tobacco, such as cannabis. It, It also would not involve dream time, ideally, which can cause some light exposure that may not only disrupt your ability to get to sleep, but can also interrupt your sleep, even though you think your sleep is continuous. So the hour before sleep is a chance for people to unwind, to do something that they enjoy, to manage their light exposure, and to really transition into a period of rest. I think, you know, sometimes it's useful to have a toddler analogy here too, you know, you wouldn't expect a little kid to just shut down and go to sleep. They need that bedtime routine. And the fact that we've grown up and we're now adulting all the time doesn't take all of that away. So a nice relaxing bedtime routine can really be helpful to make that transition as smooth as it can be. That's so perfect because again, so many people are running, 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 and then they think, okay, now it's time to fall into bed. And they can't understand why their thoughts are just spinning like crazy. And they've got all this kind of adrenaline going and they have all these thoughts. I'm going to ask you, first of all, what do you suggest when people are having all those thoughts? I used to tell my patients, like, write it down on a piece of paper and like, leave it in the kitchen. And so then when you, and and again, have a relaxing bedtime routine, that hour before bed is sacred is what I would 
tell them. And then, you know, when your brain would start to bring up those thoughts again, you can say like, okay, I remember I wrote it down. I'll deal with it later. But that was just my opinion as not a sleep doctor. What are your thoughts on that? I think um, that's a great technique. And for some people, writing down the thoughts rather proximal to bedtime can be activating. So if that's true, then, you know, journaling or making your to-do list several hours in advance can be better. Oh, I like um, that. I think that, you know, if, if you tend to have a busy brain at night, there are some things that can help quiet that. So guided meditation is one technique that I offer up a lot of times, or just listening to something boring, like uh, for me, that would be a history book on audio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you are lying in bed awake with your thoughts and feelings and nothing to distract you, you know, it, it's something that's that can be hard to overcome. And if you repeatedly do that, you tend to have a cognitive pairing with the bed and being awake. So to break that, it would be more helpful actually to get up out of bed, go into a different room, low light, low stimulus activity, and then only return to bed when you feel like there's a high chance you'd be able to go to sleep within a few minutes. Love it. I'm glad you brought up the guided meditation. I know there are a lot of apps that, again, I would tell my patients. And in fact, I have one of my children. She has a really hard time falling asleep and was having a lot of rumination. And so we started guided meditation with her before bed. And it's just been so helpful. She's like, yeah, I fall asleep within minutes now. So that's Have really you ever been in a situation where you're trying to fall asleep and your feet are cold and you can't get to sleep? Yeah. I think it's funny. Um, the temperature shifts are something else you can manage a bit. And some people take like a, a shower or a bath before they go to bed. I want to make a point that it's, it's actually better to take a warm shower or warm bath uh, instead of a hot exposure to water so that your body temperature is coming down. That can help you relax and kind of be part of your routine to go to sleep. It's very hard to fall asleep with cold feet. And sometimes I actually use a heating pad or one of those rice warmers to- Yeah, uh, that's so <laughs> funny. In the winter, I always have socks on. And it's interesting because this really only happened since I've been older. I mean, I, like a parent, I don't know how many years it's been. But my you know, youngest child will sometimes come in and snuggle with me. We'll read at night. She's like, mom, why do you have socks on? And she makes fun of me. But I'm like, sweetie, I have, my feet are cold and I can't fall asleep with cold feet to, to your point in the winter time. So yeah, you have to yeah. be comfy. And I like the room really cool. Like, I know what I like. I like it dark. I like it cool. I like a fan on even in the winter. Yes. And all of those things are actually important too for anybody out there who's perimenopausal, right down to the socks on the feet, which is a little bit counterintuitive. But if you're someone who has hot flashes in the middle of the night, wearing socks to bed can help to regulate your body temperature a bit and may cut down on the number of hot flashes you're experiencing. Are you serious? That's amazing. So people who have hot flashes are probably thinking like, I just need to wear next to nothing when I go to bed and stay away from everybody, right? And have a fan on. <laughs> what I'm hearing you say is like, socks on the feet might be the secret. Yes, and like I said, it doesn't make a lot of Please sense. Please try about. it. Yes, I'm, <laughs> at face value, it's kind of funny, but um, what you're doing is you're allowing more blood flow in your extremities, which can reduce the core body temperature a bit. Wow. So even like the trick of putting the lotion on your hands and then the cotton gloves to keep your skin yes. nice, 
that can work too if you're uh, struggling with hot flashes. I mean, that makes sense. Again, I'm kind of a nerd, like probably many of my listeners like to think about the physiology of that. Like, oh yeah, so like the blood flow, you're not constricted peripherally. Mm-hmm. So the blood flow goes, so you're not so hot centrally. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. That's a wonderful tip. Thank you. Any other tips for, I mean, I know this is getting a little off, but I think it's so important because many of my listeners, most of my listeners are women, except for my dad. Mm-hmm. Hi, dad. You can keep wearing your socks at night too, if that's what you need. But so many people do struggle with that. Any other tips for women who are going through perimenopause? Mm -hmm. Because that really is disruptive to sleep. Oh, yes, for sure. You know, I I think the good news is usually that gets better, but it can be a rough few years in there. And ironically, you know, the loss of sleep that hot flashes can cause is something that puts you more at risk for hot flashes. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle there. So wow, I did not know that. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people really are suffering, not only because of the sleep deprivation, but the shifts in moods and hormones. Sometimes magnesium, a little bit of magnesium at night can be helpful. Um, For sleep, you want to look for magnesium glyconate, which has less of a motility effect. um, But Magnesium citrate is really commonly available, and that will cause some gastric motility, but some people um, have that as a welcome side effect. And then cutting back on things like caffeine and alcohol is really helpful to reduce hot flashes in the middle of the night. So helpful. Thank you so much. And now that you brought up caffeine and alcohol, that affects sleep, I think, no matter what your age is. So- Mm -hmm. Talk just briefly about that. What are your thoughts about when people should cut out caffeine and tell us about alcohol's effect? Because when I was younger, I could drink in the evening and sleep no problem. Now, if I have a couple glasses of wine, I'm up at three in the morning, like looking around from three to four, and I'm not real happy about it. So if you don't mind speaking to the caffeine and alcohol's effect on our body and sleep, that would be great. Yeah, definitely. I have the same reaction to alcohol now. I, I really don't tolerate it now. It's it's really something that reliably affects my sleep quality and it's frustrating. So alcohol is a sedative. And when you take alcohol within four hours of sleeping, then you're promoting that sleep initiation. So you may have noticed that it's easier to get to sleep, but the sleep cycling that you experience is actually not normal. And that's because of the sedative properties. Then the next thing that happens after you've gotten to sleep in a shorter amount of time is the alcohol gets metabolized and you wake up in the middle of the night and it's hard to get back to sleep because you have a little bit of a mini withdrawal from the alcohol in the middle of the night. For some people who are sensitive to it, this can happen even after a drink or two. With others, it takes more, but that tends to decline as we age. And so that's probably the effects that you and I are, are Yeah, I mean, it's now. really like a couple glasses of wine. It's like, mm-hmm. it used to be like, oh, no problem. So I'm like, well, I guess I'll have one and a lot of water or I'll just skip it, right? Yeah. Or, you know, drinking earlier in the day is a way to get out around that. So kind of uh, think about that when you're going on a wine tasting, you know, that's the earlier you can uh, fit that in, the better. Interesting. So interesting. And as far as caffeine, like I love my coffee in the morning. I really don't drink it in the afternoon. And again, the advice that I would give my patients, because so many people come to primary care doctors saying that they can't sleep. I'm like, okay, well, no caffeine after two o'clock. Like I just made up a number, but 
Tell me what, again, a sleep doctor would say. Yeah, that's good advice for uh, the majority of people. For people who are sensitive, I mean, even restricting that to the morning might be more helpful. And I'm a coffee lover myself. I think that when I counsel people, I sometimes detect this reluctance to attribute the effects of, of their sleep problem to the caffeine because, you know, caffeine is really yummy. and It's fun. delicious. Like my cup of coffee <laughs> with cream in the morning. It makes me so happy. Sometimes that's yes. what gets me out of bed, even when I'm tired. Right. And, you know, there's, I think whenever I counsel people, there's always this idea of good, better, best. So, you know, if you want to shoot for kind of optimizing your sleep quality and keeping caffeine from affecting that, then you would really restrict your intake to uh, two cups of homebrewed caffeine. Sometimes the uh, commercial brewed coffee has a lot more caffeine in it. So two cups of homebrew uh, before 10 a.m., and then kind of the middle ground is three to four cups before noon. And, you know, if you're drinking coffee after 2 p.m., you can bet that it's affecting your sleep because the half-life is eight to 12 hours. So even per, for people that they who don't perceive they're having sleep problems, there is some effect from the caffeine if you're taking it that late into the afternoon. So I suggest decaf sometimes or half-calf is an option as well. You can make your own by combining the beans. It's a little bit of a titration sometimes because you don't want to stop abruptly and have that uh, caffeine withdrawal headache, which, you know, that's no fun at all. But, you know, just looking that, at that as a way to improve your sleep quality could really be some low-hanging fruit. So good. So if someone is feeling stuck, because again, I know I've been in situations like this where you just have like a super busy week and you're not getting good sleep and you're like living on caffeine. And then, you know, you come to the evening and you're so revved up that maybe you do turn to alcohol. Like everything is just kind of like survival. Mm -hmm. Where do you start? And I know that's a big, broad question, but. Yeah, I think that this is this is one way that people end up seeking pharmacological treatment for their sleep. And I would really suggest just taking a few steps back to evaluate the big picture of your life to see if you can turn things around. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is that sleeping pills, both over-the-counter and prescription sleep aids, are not meant for long-term use. In fact, uh, even the prescription sleep aids tend to um, cause people to develop some tolerance, and then you're kind of just dealing with a placebo effect, or you're just not responsive, but quitting the sleeping pills can be sometimes a challenge. Over-the-counter sleep aids are not that great either. They tend to capitalize on some of the side effects of things like diphenhydramine, but those cause hangover effects the next day. So you really haven't made any gains with what you're trying to achieve. Taking a few steps back and kind of recognizing that sleep is a fundamental biological need that needs to be prioritized is a much healthier way to approach a situation like that. So creating some space for that in your life is likely to get you more of where you want to go. I would agree with you 100%. I think that's fantastic. Again, we're just going to keep normalizing like we are humans mm -hmm. and sleep is vital. And no matter how hard you try to get rid of sleep so you can quote unquote do more. It's not beneficial for you. And in fact, you're probably not doing whatever it is you're trying to do that 
efficiently because when you're exhausted, um, things don't go so smoothly. And if you need some help with that, just keep listening to my podcast because I talk a lot about how we can like let stuff go. We have all these thoughts and expectations, you know, societal pressures, all that stuff that we, we talk a lot about here. That's really, really helpful. One question that I wanted to ask you, and I know you're going to have the answer is when I was post-call or I remember so many times being at the hospital all night for delivery and then getting, you know, my cup of coffee and getting ready to go to clinic for the whole day, I would swing through the McDonald's drive-through and get my, you know, egg McSandwich, whatever, like stuff that I wouldn't normally eat. Like I'm craving all this salty, high calorie food, you know, those post-call breakfasts when we were residents with the hash browns and the eggs, all that delicious stuff, but like stuff that normally doesn't I don't desire that typically, but when I was post-call, I always do. So tell me, why is that? Yeah, I totally relate to that. For me, it was biscuits and gravy. And yeah. it was like, I needed a reward. That's how, that's some thoughts that I had about it. And certainly programs like yours address that type of maladaptive thinking. But in the case of sleep deprivation affecting appetite, there's actually several things at play. So in the situation you described, sleep deprivation is going to cause a spike in your stress hormone cortisol. It will cause a increase in the hunger hormone ghrelin, and it causes a decrease in the satiety hormone leptin. So this is the perfect storm to eat more and feel full less. And so you're in a way, you're just having a biological response to that sleep deprivation. And again, it does not have to be uh, missing a whole night's sleep. It can be sleeping six hours or less, and you disrupt your hormone regulation in a clinically significant way. Another Say thing- that one more time. Sorry, sometimes I just have people repeat these things. It's like me getting out the highlighter. So please just state that sentence again. Yeah. So even if your sleep is restricted to six hours a night on a routine basis, it is affecting your hormonal control of appetite and satiety in a clinically meaningful way. In fact, this has been demonstrated and quantified numerous times. So people who are getting around six hours of sleep at night tend to eat three to 600 more calories per day and will reliably gain 10 pounds of weight year on year. Being opportunity with short sleep, uh, you're more sedentary with short sleep, your mood is decreased, so there's less motivation, there's less creative thinking and problem solving, and you know your, your core body temperature drops. So there's fundamental changes in your metabolism from short sleep. There's a famous study done on young, healthy men, like you know, medical studies are done on young, healthy men, right? So in this group, uh, they restricted sleep to four hours a night for six nights and induced insulin desensitization in this group of young healthy men. In other words, they were insulin resistant. Wow. Having six nights of four hours of sleep per night. So, you know, these hormonal shifts and effects are no doubt contributing to things like overweight and obesity. They contribute psychologically to behaviors that we're wanting to curb, and it profoundly affects your weight and your outcomes with health. So, you know, I I really want to underscore the impact of sleep. And 
And I think it tends to be underestimated or attributed to other things, but sleep is a superpower. And if you can get it, you are really bolstering your health and well-being. Sleep is a superpower. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to just like go around my family and just gloat because they all make fun of me because I go to bed so early. I'm like, <laughs> I don't care. It's 830. It's time for me to go read a little bit because I just need it. But I guess that's because that's why I'm a superwoman is because I get Absolutely. Sleep. Yes. Oh my gosh. This conversation is so fascinating to me. What have we not yet touched on that you think is really important to share? I mean, I know we could probably have conversation for another hour and we'll likely have to have a conversation another time, but in the things that we've talked about today, what am I missing? What am I forgetting to ask you about? I am a huge sleep nerd. So I love it. On and, you know, I, I kind of joke with my husband that if he can't sleep, then just ask me to talk. And I think I would put him out in a few minutes. So I think today in talking with you, I would really just like to highlight the message that it is really important to be your own advocate for sleep. There's tons of information out there about sleep and sleep disorders, tons of information about how sleep affects your health and well-being, but it really is a choice that you make every single day to get what you need where your sleep is concerned and kind of look at your, the big picture of your life and figure out you know, what you want to accomplish. And no doubt in my mind that getting better sleep will help you with that. Oh my goodness. I agree 100%. And for those mama docs who are saying, but I work and then I want to spend time with the kids. And then like, I've got to like clean up the kitchen and do the laundry. And maybe I need to like go hop on my bike for 20 minutes. So sleep is like the last thing. What would you tell her? That's uh, those types of statements are what I like to respond with. Yes. And, and so you, all of those things are true to some extent, but reframing that to reduce the demand that you're making of yourself personally is, is only going to serve you. So yes, these things need to be done. And there's probably some wiggle room in modifying that, that you can look for in order to preserve your own resources. So you have to put your oxygen mask on first before you put your oxygen on any other kid or, you know, family member. I'm thinking of the airplane here. Yeah, no, I um, love it. It's, it's so true. And I say it time and again about taking care of ourselves. This is a part of self-care ladies. Mm -hmm. This is not optional. This is vital. Sleep affects the brain. It affects your physical health. If you want to be around and healthy for your kids and your grandkids someday, please consider that sleep, but don't even consider, understand that sleep is so vital. I, again, Absolutely. I could talk about it all day long because I saw the effect of sleep deprivation, what it had on my sister. And I just think, uh-uh, no more. Who cares if there's a freaking pile of laundry? Like it'll get done or hire a neighbor kid to do your laundry. Like be creative when you've gotten, when you've gotten good sleep, you can do some problem solving, exactly. right? Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. Sleep is a superpower. Well, I think you and I need to go on tour and tell the whole world. <laughs> and in fact, this again would be a conversation for another day. It pains me the way that our medical culture ignores this completely mm -hmm. and how we have folks who are working really long hours, making critical life or death decisions in the hospital with a lack of sleep. So 
I don't know, we need to make some changes. And again, I think it does start with the individual to say like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. Or after my shift, I'm going to come home and get sleep. I've had clients of mine recently say, hey, I've raised my hand and say, I will not work post-call. You know, that used to be the standard for them in their office that they would, you know, do deliveries all night and then work in clinic the next day or do surgeries the next day. And they've said, no, I will not do that any further. But I just, of course, you know, want to like do the sweeping change across the nation, like change the laws and all this. And I'm not sure that's practical, but like one person at a time. But any other ideas about that? Because I just feel like I want to band together with you and so many people and just like march and say, you know, we too are human. We need sleep. You want us to take great care of you, then let us take care of ourselves. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, for me, I have this personal experience of hallucinating when I was post-call on more than one occasion. I mean, it's REM intrusion. And there's also like this emotional burden that people live with in training from just trying to function and, and adhere to the culture of medical training. And it's a problem. It's not only a safety problem for that person, it's a safety problem for patients. And it's really something that we've seen some progress in, but it's not enough. I would like to get all the vectors pointed toward health, not just physical health or mental health, but you know, also health of the culture is important. And I don't think we're there yet. It's like changing the direction of an ocean liner. It's going to take some time. But um, in my case, I was the last class, the last intern class for the 80-hour work week before we transitioned to that. You were too. Yeah. And yeah. I would do 36-hour call shifts. Like what? Yes. Yes. And, you know, I remember sitting at a light and the light changed from red to green. And I remember having the thought, you know, what does that mean? I know I'm supposed to do something here. And I was behind the wheel of a car. Fortunately, I didn't live very far from from the hospital, and I only say that because that means my speed wasn't high as I was traveling home, but I had just as much risk to hit something with my weapon. And it's it's dangerous. I saw a CDC statistic that said being awake for 24 hours was the equivalent of having a blood alcohol level of 0.1. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's ridiculous. I had a previous podcast guest several months ago, and she said that she had such sleep deprivation. She was a surgical resident and was going in to do a consent before surgery. And she couldn't even remember how to sign her name. That is terrifying. And she realized right then I cannot operate. So she told her senior, like, I can't be here right now because I am unsafe. Like I can't even, I don't even know where I'm supposed to sign my name. I don't know. I don't understand what I'm doing. That's scary. It is scary. So I agree the culture needs to change and it is going to be a big ocean liner, but I just want to let people know that we can make some efforts individually by standing up and saying, this is unsafe. This just doesn't work for me. Yeah. And to prioritize sleep when you're home, all the other things, you know, maybe it's going to be a few years that you just need to have somebody do your laundry or what have you. I don't know why I always bring up laundry, but with four children, there's always laundry at this house. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it's a major problem. The more people that that speak up and give voice to this brings it into our awareness. And so don't wait. If you're feeling sleepy, sleep deprived, and it's a safety issue, as soon as you're having that awareness, there's probably, you know, a number of hours before you had that awareness when you weren't safe. So recognizing where your boundary is, where, what the signs are of your own personal sleepiness can help before you get into a situation where things are, are not safe for you or somebody that you're around. Wonderful. And the other thing that this raising awareness is going to like allow people to talk about it, you know, we're taught like not to complain and the old boys club, like, oh, we had it so much harder. Like we hate to bring things up, but we do need to talk about it. And the other thing that I'll just mention again is that I've had so many people reach out to me and say that they also have had dark thoughts when they Mm -hmm. have been sleep deprived. And if you are sleep deprived right now and you are having dark thoughts, please let somebody know make sure you're getting sleep. I'm going to put a post to the physician hotline. You can call for help. You can reach out to me. You just need to let somebody know that you're not at fault. Your brain is telling you lies and you're slipping into a dark place because your brain is needing sleep. So I just want to normalize that I've had more than a dozen women reach out to me when I've been talking about sleep that, oh, me too. I've had thoughts (laughs) like that as well. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So We just need to honor and discuss that this is a possibility and that there is help available. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the call today. I love your energy and that you describe sleep as a superpower. How do people contact you? I know that you are coaching and that you also have programs for folks with sleep apnea. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, as a nod to sleep as a superpower, I created a uh, program which is rolling out soon. For more information, uh, your listeners could go to supersleepmd.com. And right now uh, we are uh, getting ready to produce a course for people who have sleep apnea and trouble with getting their sleep apnea treated. Most often that involves uh, resistance or trouble with CPAP therapy. And then I also do individual coaching one-on-one for high achievers with problems overing. So over not only overachieving, but overscheduling, overeating, over or under sleeping. And if anyone is interested in working with me in a one-on-one coaching relationship, then they can go to my website, which is bossmythoughts.com. Ooh, I love that. Boss, my thoughts. So good. (laughs) So wonderful. Well, it was such a pleasure to have you today. And I think I can't wait to like go march around and like change the world with you. Right. Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, where are you on that campaign? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I think it's vital. I really think it is like enough is enough. This culture of like keeping us sleep deprived and acting like we're robots when we're actually not it. It's not going to fly on my watch anymore. Yeah. We're human beings and we have needs. Sleep is one of them. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Wells. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Pleasure, Michelle. Take good care. Are you ready to take control of your life and put these tools into action? I'm here to help. I offer free consultations for physician moms to see if my one-on-one coaching package is right for you. You can sign up for a free consult at 
www.mamadoclifecoach.com. <laughs>